Here we are for another episode of Access of Easy Salon, number 38, recording this on... I, you know, I saw the date and I just, my mind blanked on the month. It's February 25th and I've got Charles Hugh Smith and Jesse Hirsch here with me for another episode of the Access of Easy Salon. It's time for the Access of Easy Podcast. So what do y'all want to talk about today? I've got a couple of things that are on my list. I am reading The Dying of the Money, which is a book about, I thought it was about the German hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, but it's really about the U.S. hyperinflation that occurred after the Civil War. And the whole section on Weimar is just, a prologue, like it's a, a precursor to it. So I haven't gotten to that section in the, of the book yet, but the the part about Weimar is really kind of reminiscent of what's going on today. I think we're in a crack up boom. I want to talk about Texas and the breakdown of civilization in Texas and how um, it's suddenly okay to talk about nuclear energy again. Um, yeah, and I, I would just, uh, I want your guys hit on um, the um, Australia versus Facebook um, kerfluffle, because um, I don't claim to have any, any really, any grasp of, of everything that's going on there, and, and it, it plays right into our, you know, network state versus nation state, so I'd love to get your guys hit on that. Well, I, I agree, Charles. I mean, you know, it's rare that I get to use the phrase network state sort of outside of the axis of easy. <laughs> so uh, I was, I've been using that phrase all the time lately in the context of Facebook in Australia. And, and that's been quite a joy. And, you know, the other thing I want to bring up today, which, because it's, I think, been a, a couple of weeks since we last met, is the case of Pablo Hassel, who is a rapper in uh, Catalonia who was jailed uh, in part for insulting the Spanish monarchy. And there were riots uh, across Catalonia, protests for nights on end, uh, you know, trying to defend his free speech. And it, it kind of struck me as an interesting contrast that here in North America, you know, when we talk about free speech, we talk about somebody getting kicked off Twitter. <laughs> but in Spain, when they talk about free speech, they talk about a rapper being imprisoned. Right, so it's a completely different context that I I thought was an interesting story. When I read it, I was like, I, I want to bring this to access. I hadn't even heard of that guy. Well, that's just it. Right, is it, is he's it, got no attention. Is it, is it so? P A B L O space H A S E L, and you know, again, nights of protests and riots in Barcelona, nights of protests throughout mm -hmm. the Catalonia region in Spain, in part because it's not just about freedom of speech, it's about the, you know, autonomous regions within Spain, right? And that Catalonia had a, a referendum on independence a couple of years ago that was highly contested. And the president of the regional government of Catalonia at the time had to flee to Brussels in exile has still not been able to return to Spain for fear of imprisonment. 
but was elected to the European Parliament as an MEP, a member of European Parliament, by people in Catalonia. So even though he's their elected representative, he can't return to Spain for fear of being arrested for sedition. So here's a government that we call, and arguably sort of is democratic, that is so outlandish in wanting to crush people who are, in this case, putting out hip-hop songs that, again, I felt it was an interesting contrast in the larger context of freedom of speech, you know, in in terms of our world of social media, because it is still a social media story, because it's the stuff that this guy says on social media and puts out into the world that the Spanish government perceives as as, as such a dangerous thing. Yeah, I just want to interject that this uh, independence movement in Catalonia goes back to at least the 1600s. In other words, there was an active armed rebellion around the mid 1600s. And it was a very close thing that the uh, central uh, government got control. Um, And at the same time, Portugal was a uh, essentially part of Spain, uh, a region of Spain, and their rebellion was uh, about the same time. And they actually succeeded and they, you know, have since been an independent nation. So Catalonia has always been like this close, you know, uh, to to uh, being, uh, if not outside of, of the Spanish uh, nation state, um, an autonomous region, as you say, with its own constitution and its own set of rights that are independent of, of what other regions may or may not have. Well, and, and that's also point out that the Spanish Civil War, which lasted from the, you know, the 1930s, really up until the Second World War, and it was only because of uh, Hitler and Mussolini who intervened on Franco's behalf that the fascists ended up winning. But it, it wasn't just an ideological war, right? It was Catalonia that rebelled, that declared a republic because, to your point, Charles, of the long-standing desire for independence and autonomy. So it's, it's not a new conflict, but it is interesting the way in which social media is as is happening elsewhere in the world, amplifying these old conflicts, amplifying these old tensions. And again, in a way that I would think as a North American, that a rapper, right? Someone who's just making music is not actually a threat to the state, right? And you think about the type of hip hop that's produced in America, the type of violence that it describes the type of criticism that it expresses of governments in general, or even sometimes of society, and that's acceptable, right? And and there's never been protests or riots when a rapper in the United States has been arrested, which does happen for all sorts of reasons. And so it just struck me as, wow, we take for granted how different some societies, in this case, governments are, when it comes to dealing with, with speech and perceiving speech as a threat and speech as a danger. So I just brought this up because I feel that I take for granted the the freedom of speech. And and even though in Canada, we don't have freedom of speech the way the United States does, we do have a culture that respects expression on a level that clearly some of the monarchies of Europe still don't. And and it was, you know, a, a refreshing moment, but also a reminder that you know one tension we have here on the show is like you guys will be really skeptical about the role that social media plays and i'm still kind of encouraged at points that if it scares the spanish government so much 
that someone is saying these things on social media, then maybe there's something to it. Although that could be a segue to the whole Facebook Australia stuff. Because that is, you know, if anything, not so much a negotiation between a company and the government, but a negotiation between government. Like, is Facebook now in the game of diplomacy? It's sort of what I was thinking of that episode, but I'm curious to hear you guys. I'm just going to interject that we have a client that works with um, independent and a lot of dissident journalists overseas. And one time they were working with some uh, independent news outlet in Spain. I'd have to check my notes to know the exact details, but we were getting leaned on by a law enforcement agency out of Spain to take the website down. And they, they were actually trying to pass off a forged email of like, this is, I, I'd have to check my notes to be exactly certain of what transpired. But I remember they were trying to make it look like they had posted something that was violated hate speech rules or something. And we were looking at this and saying, this is, this did not come from here. And we were talking with our client about it and everything. And it was just, yeah, they're really leaning hard. They're trying to get this site taken down. And we, we ended up not taking it down. Also reminded me, whatever happened to Pussy Riot? I mean, didn't one of them die in prison? I thought one of them died in prison or something. I mean, they're a D. I mean, you can't really monopolize people who choose to protest by putting graffiti on their bare chests and, you know, drawing attention to themselves using nudity so you know there are a lot of uh, uh cells that would claim that they are still them mm -hmm. and so that tactic is still being used by protesters and in protesting events uh but the man who was behind them had a lot of controversy and that may be why the media is no longer amplifying those events and amplifying those protests mm -hmm. in the sensationalist way that they originally so their Malcolm McLaren turned out to be a bust. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Mark, I want to make sure we get back to Texas and hyperinflation because um, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of movement ahead in the um, financial sector that's going to have real economic impact. And those are the two topics we really need to discuss in that regard. But um, I just, while we're talking about Oz versus Facebook, um, Again, I don't claim to be well informed about this, but it appears that at least one opinion out there is that that the government of Australia wanted to siphon money off from Facebook for to serve one of its um, sort of elites or one of its um, uh, you know financial leeches, if you will, you know how, whatever you want to call rentier class. class, yeah, or, or one, one of the big power players in Australia. Yeah, exactly. And so then I was wanted to and kind of to be clear. We're talking about the same person, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm only, only talking. Well, I don't know. Um, who are you? Talking? My, well, I, I don't know who I'm talking about in terms of the um, the uh, power players that are going to benefit from what Australia wanted to do with the money. Okay, because I'll say his name. It's Rupert Murdoch. Okay. 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 Well, Rupert and, and, Murdoch owns the news media in Australia. They want to take the money from Facebook and give it to the news media, which all, is all owned by Rupert Murdoch. 
Right, right. Okay. Is and he so still that, alive? <laughs> or am I confused with somebody else? Okay. Um, uh, well, so then, so then it's like this, who owns most of Facebook? Well, that's also like, um, a, a, a set of power player, um, financial leeches. Right. And so it's like, is it one elite versus another elite? And then the, the masses are either the voters of Australia or the users of Facebook. And, and they're like basically, um, in the stadium, you know, watching, the uh, the fight on the on the floor and um, they're they're not really going to benefit either way I'm, is what I'm is what I'm wondering like does it really matter who wins no it's all a farce and, and I would say like the I mean I I've been both avoiding this story as much as I can and failing to do so uh, and 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 I almost want to describe it all as just theater right like I love the phrase security theater or even pandemic theater, right? The idea that you go through the motions of making it look like everything's secure when in fact it's not at all. Or you go through the motions as if you're fighting a pandemic and meanwhile the virus continues to spread uncontrollably. And I almost feel this is an example of policy theater. The Australian government wants to look like they're being hard on Facebook. And, you know, Facebook wants to look as if they're being responsible and they're doing what governments want. They're helping to support journalism. And the news industry wants to look as if they should exist at all. Because <laughs> this is where I, I kind of side with you, Mark, and this idea that if we're going to have market capitalism, when businesses make mistakes, they should suffer the consequences. Therefore, the news industry should be MF bankrupt because they have made <laughs> so many mistakes in the last 10 years they do not deserve to be in business and that's what australia is proposing a bailout for rupert murdoch by taxing Facebook. and the canadian government has quickly said oh oh me too mr cotter i would like to do the same thing and i see it as policy theater because it's not accomplishing anything you're not actually going to save news you're not actually going to stop facebook the government's not actually doing anything facebook's like it's just it's just a show right it's just a big kind of like hey everybody look at us look at us and in the end i agree charles it's one elite saying to another elite pass me that piece of the chessboard please and the other one saying okay well i'll give you this in exchange and the rest of us you know we can go f to be clear the canadians didn't say me too in in that they didn't come up with our own idea to do the same thing here in Canada after the Australian thing. This has been a long time coming, right? But what I mean in the sense of me too is that the Canadians didn't have the courage to say anything mm. until it happened in Australia. All these governments have been meeting together. Right. Dare I use this word, colluding, conspiring together to do this, right? And this is different than the stuff that I've been critical of you for pointing to. I wasn't even going to say it, but it did come. It was enough, it was yeah. mentioned in there. <laughs> right. But I'm just pointing out that this is actually a result of a different process of right. cabinet ministers meeting behind the scenes internationally. And, and that's why I was saying, don't give that other thing attention. Wait until the real conspiracy emerges so that you can point to that and say, that's the wolf. And that is what we're dealing with. Right but Sorry what? What? 
has happened, though, is Canada had already bailed out the mainstream media here. They continue to do so. Um, and the, uh, the other fascinating thing I find about this, and I'm going to make a bizarre tangent, but it, it, it does fit together, is that whole idea of Facebook just like they actually stared down a, a national government. You're right. It was nation state versus network state. And it was like, well, we can't have that. And then they came to a deal that they could live with. It was really uh, negotiations among equals, possibly even among, among a, a more powerful um, entity in Facebook than in the Australian government. And, it, and what it reminded me of um, is the same, this, this whole um, uh, uh, double standard between big business and small business when, um, when everyone was locked down and Tesla, Elon Musk said, fuck you, I'm going to keep running. And they didn't send sheriffs out to the, out to the Tesla plant and drag them out in handcuffs like a, you know, a family with too many people in the house on Christmas Eve. They negotiated with him. They, Alameda County entered into negotiations with Musk to like, come on, we really want you to follow the rules. But if someone else says, you know, screw you, I'm opening my business, you get dragged out in chains. End rant. <laughs> yeah, I, I find the, the whole, um, it, within the context of our discussion of network state versus you know, nation state. I think the nation state um, side of, you know, the nation state team has, has really um, has given away a lot of goals here. <laughs> and I think they're just not playing very smart. And I, I wrote a post, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago that said um, what's within the, the power of the nation state is to just turn these social media companies into utilities by, by, by banning the collection of all individuals information about individual users other than their their um their name on the internet you know that's basically it you know and um their email yeah and so be if if you if the nation state imposed that rule then immediately that removes all of the uh, contentiousness around you know collecting data and it removes the um the source of the tens of billions of profits because the only thing that the the uh social media giants and search giants would have left is the same old display ads, which pay very poorly and don't work that well, but that's it. And so it'd be like an ad on your local um, utility site. And, and that would remove their power because they would, they would still have the reach, but they would no longer be collecting tens of billions of dollars in profit, which they can then use to buy political influence. Here's the thing, can I jump in very quickly? Hold the thought. I don't know who I want. So let me rephrase it. I was about to say, I don't know who I want to win this fight, but now I'm thinking, I don't know who I want to lose this fight. And when I wrote this up in Axis of Easy, I used the analogy of Uruburus, the snake that eats his own tail. When you see different ancient depictions of Uruburus, sometimes it's two snakes eating each other's tails. And, and that's what this feels like to me. And I'm like, I either want them both to lose, or I don't know that I <laughs> nation want state to win. Yeah, except you know we're we're getting a little into graphic territory here, so <laughs> I, I'm going to risk getting too close to the edge, and then I'll bring it back. 
But it strikes me here. I wish it was snakes eating each other because that would suggest that there was some pain being inflicted, that there was some suffering going on. But I think the analogy is that it's a circle jerk. You know, I think that these are elites. I use that phrase all the time. Yeah, I, I, that's, you know, that's sort of the the frame. But I want to build off what Charles was saying, uh, both by acknowledging that there is a growing discussion in policy circles around the concept of making data radioactive, right? And, And maybe I'm leading up to, Mark, you wanted to talk about nuclear energy. But the idea of making data radioactive is that you make the laws around data collection and data protection so onerous that the only way that you would actually collect and maintain that data is if it was super, super important, but it came with such incredible overhead to maintain the integrity of that radioactivity and then the waste that it produced, i.e. the potential privacy harms, that only few people would have the capacity to do it and simultaneously it would destroy the business models of all the surveillance capitalist companies who are using surveillance and data to extract. Uh, so I'm just raising that as an example, but now allow me to share where my head is currently at. Can we just and stick a pin in one thing and then can well, stick it? Because you, you, okay, you already diverted me when I followed Charles the first time. All right, I'll, re- and I'll make a note. that was not my follow-up. Go that ahead. That was not my follow-up. That was just me responding to his thing. And now I'm saying, here's my follow-up, <laughs> which, I don't know if I agree with. I'm saying this out loud <coughs> to just say it out loud, but this is not yet my position. I'm, it's just an idea. So part of me is like, yeah, Charles, you're right. D- the digital monopolies are public utilities. And then I'm like, we should nationalize them, right? Like they should be in the hands of the people. But then I'm like, no, no, that wouldn't work. There's no way that you'd be able to nationalize these companies without a real messy fight. So what about this? What if it was an open source mandate that all the technology, all the infrastructure, this is our protocols rather than platforms idea, that the entire infrastructure to run this stuff must be open source. So you can do whatever you want trying to attract people to your platform, but any competitor can set up next door just as easily because they can use all the same software, they can use all the same concepts, and all of a sudden, the barrier to enter the market is lowered. So on the one hand, you still allow the internet to be this kind of, you know, consensual hallucination, where if people want to give up their data, they can, but it's not lock-in, and it's not platform. It's protocols, it's open source, and that way, all of a sudden, you get the kind of competition, you get privacy alternatives, you get anonymous alternatives, you get decentralized alternatives. So you can actually start allowing, empowering people to be wiser about what they do rather than allow these few companies to own and control. Sorry, Mark, you wanted to Well, now you got me to think about something else. You do realize that's kind of how the cryptocurrency space is because the source- It's how the cryptocurrency space wishes it were. But quite frankly, from an external observer, they got a lot of work to do. But still, anybody can fork Bitcoin because it's open source. No, they can't. No, not anybody can fork Bitcoin. Sure they can. Bitcoin, no, 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 hold on. Let, let, we, let's have this argument. It's worth having. So anyone can fork it. They just might not no, no, get stop, the market stop. success of it. Hold on. Stop. I'm objecting. If you repeat what I'm objecting, I'll just keep objecting. 
it is technically possible to fork Bitcoin. I'll agree with that statement. Saying that anyone could fork Bitcoin is literally and technically not true because there's a certain amount of technical literacy and computational capacity required to do so. So the suggestion that anyone can fork Bitcoin is a lie. It's totally incorrect. That the better way to phrase it is Bitcoin can be forked. Okay. And then a follow-up question is, well, who could? Who would? Why but, would? But then so right? that's politics. How does that well, isn't it the same thing as what you just said about an open source mandate on social media platforms? They would face the same constrictions or or market inertia as what we're just talking about with Bitcoin. No, they'd be different restrictions and different market inertia, different obstacles. And, and the the job of the revolution <laughs> would be to adjust and figure out. And I'm not talking like communist revolution. That was the first scenario. Now I'm talking the cyberpunk revolution. Right, the open source revolution. It would have to be responsive. It would have to be adaptive. You'd have to find a way to program the system to enable, you know, open competition. To enable, you know, uh, rules applicable to all, rather than skewing the system so that the powerful can, you know, make it work for them. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying it's achievable. I, I'm not even saying I support it. I'm just floating it as a concept in response to Charles's point about maybe we should be thinking of these as utilities rather than as something that can be monopolized and controlled by single I hate to tell you this, but that is already done with the cryptocurrency space. And what you no, object no, no. to in the cryptocurrency space are the exact same dynamics that you would run no. into in this kind no, of a I mandate. I have no problems with you objecting to me, but I do have problems with you mischaracterizing my position. So provide me the opportunity to clarify. I disagree when you say that the cryptocurrency has done that. I would say that the cryptocurrency people are attempting that. They have not accomplished it. And the reasons that they haven't accomplished it are more than the similar things that prevent, say, the open source. Like, it would just be different, right? And I would like to see multiple attempts of which the cryptocurrency people are one. But I'm suggesting that the language used by the cryptocurrency world, the metaphors used by the cryptocurrency world are aspirational. They're dreams of believers. They're dreams of zealots. But they are not true to everyone else who objectively can look at them and go, yeah, no, sorry, you haven't accomplished it. <coughs> you're trying, good job, right? Do what you can, but no, sorry, you're not ready for prime time. Let's debate it. Come here on the show and let's have it out. But again, we digress. We should Charles probably let Charles out. talk, yeah. Well, it's interesting here because um, let's. It's, I'm going to tie it into Mark's topic of Texas. And um, here's this sort of context that, I, that I'm going to establish, which is what makes a utility a utility? And a utility, you could say, serves the public good. And it cannot be replaced with something else. In other words, the, uh, the classic neoliberal market, I, you know, theology, and it is a theology, is anything that's scarce, even momentarily, can be substituted with something else. And the, the, the cliche is, well, if beef gets too expensive, you can buy chicken. And if chicken gets too expensive, you can buy catfish or, you know, whatever. And it's all like, yeah, but when it comes to things like electricity, there is no alternative. 
It, it, it is the, the platform of creating electricity is so um, is so uh, strict. In other words, it has to come out at 60 megahertz and it has to be 110, at least in the US. And so the, the requirement for a utility is there is no substitute. And so it's not really a market. That, that's like a fraud to call it a market. That's the are you saying, are you saying we can't are you saying we can't make hedonic adjustments for electricity like just burn firewood instead? <laughs> well, here's my analogy. <laughs> and here's, I interrupted Charles. Sorry. Go ahead. No, here, here's my analogy. Um, you you have a heart attack, and um, somebody comes up to you, and you you know you need hospitalization extremely quickly, or you're going to die, right? And they say, well, you know, there's a market here. You don't have to take that ambulance. Oh, and by the way, there's only one ambulance available and he's charging $25,000 for the ride in cash. Surge pricing. And so, um, or, you know, it's, we'll just hang on and there'll be an entrepreneur that will come up with another alternative and there'll be a market here. And it's all like, no, I'm sorry. I call BS. That is not reality. So when you, when you um, open a neoliberal market, fake market for things like water, then what happens is, the two or three private water companies that existed eventually get bought up by a monopoly, right? They get bought up by Nestle's or some giant mega corporation who has access to cheap central bank credit and they can outbid anyone. They, they, can, they can jack it up to whatever price the person is willing, will, will finally cave and sell them the, the water system. And so then they have a monopoly and then they can jack up the price. And that's exactly what every market does to um, that it's not really a market. That, that's what happens when you take utilities and you debauch them with neoliberalism. So what happened in Texas is they, they said, well, what we, wanna, what we care about is price. And what they should have said is we, what we care about is reliable electricity. Now I'm gonna go into a little rant here, but this is important. You gotta understand that alternative energy is intermittent. Okay, like wind, solar, you know, whatever. Okay, the only reliable alternative energy or, you know, green or whatever is hydropower, right? Assuming it rains enough to fill the reservoir and geothermal. Everything else is intermittent. Okay, so that means you need two systems. You need the entire system of gas powered, you know, turbines for when the intermittent power dies. So you need two systems. That's already very expensive. You need your alternative energy system, and then you need the backup system for when, the, when it goes intermittent, right? And then if you want to get around that, then you need a third system. You need batteries on, a, on an industrial scale to store the intermittent energy and use it. So now you've tripled the cost of your system. That's reality. That's reality. So who's going who's gonna to pay for, for maintaining three systems so that you can have the, the label of, well, we're green? No, it doesn't work. And so what the utility, and, and this is where it comes back to what social media really is, is the utility for water and electricity is what society needs is not a profit center. There's already a million of those. What, what society needs is a super reliable dependable source for fresh water and electricity at X megahertz and X, you know, um, uh, voltage. And so, and that's not, that's hard to do. You know, it's really hard to do. Actually, if you talk to people who work at utilities, it is extremely hard 
to guarantee electricity at peaks, spikes, et cetera, et cetera, at the exact right dimensions. And you can't say, well, we're going to give you that at 45 megahertz. No, then, or 75, then all the electronics in that system are fried. <laughs> and so we're, and so my question to you guys is, if we turn social media into a utility, what is the value proposition to society? What is exactly, what's the equivalent of saying we want a dependable, reliable source of something that's essential, that the market is actually a fraud? There is no market for that. Well, I mean, I, I hesitate to say it because it is so obvious, but it's the ability to effing communicate. Like, you know, if you want to be a deaf mute, I get it. You know, live on your own, be a monk on the mountain, cool. But in any other scenario, society is based on our ability to express ourselves and communicate with each other. And, you know, maybe we have that in such abundance. We are so wealthy when it comes to our ability to express ourselves and communicate and make media, such as we are doing right now, that we take it for granted. Right? This is Article 19 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It is an actual human right that you have not just the ability to express yourself, but access to the means of production to communicate yourself. That's why access to the internet is fundamentally a human right. So, you know, I think from a conditioning perspective, from a cultural perspective, people have taken for granted that they got to pay for their effing cell phone and they got to pay for the internet, and they shouldn't. That stuff should be free, right? And the same way that the ability to organize information online and communicate online, it is free. It just happens to involve advertising that nobody really wants. So, you know, maybe this is part of the cyborg manifesto or the cyberpunk manifesto. Sorry, my Freudian slip there. And that, you know, in having an open source infrastructure, you can dramatically lower the overhead cost. In removing the advertising, you get rid of a lot of the unpleasantness and the need for surveillance. And then all of a sudden, you got an infrastructure that really lends itself to creativity, commercial application, and all sorts of interesting you know, apps. Because instead of it being dominated by these three giants, which are seeking to overthrow other governments and replace them with themselves, how incompetent as they may be, that, you know, I, that to me is a pretty self-evident sell. Unfortunately, no one in power is interested in that story and no one who doesn't have power can do anything about it. See, I still can't figure out who I trust less, right? Big, <laughs> big tech or governments. So the why idea- Why do you gotta trust either? Well, sorry, did you say why? Yeah, why would you have to trust either? Well, if you're gonna open source- Why social would you try all of them? Because if you're going to open source social media platforms and make them a public utility, there's still going to be, you know, the other big problem with social media is there's, there's the surveillance capitalism on one side, and then there's the filtering and censorship on the other, right? Not, I won't call it censorship, I'll call it shaping, right? And so who do I want shaping the narrative? A big but tech... But who could shape the narrative? Pardon me? It, but like... Again, maybe this wasn't clear, but like in, uh, uh, and, and again, I'm not saying I support this, I'm just articulating. In an open source world, right, you know, to your earlier allusion to Bitcoin, there is no exercising of coercion because you could just fork off, eh? 
Like, at any point, if someone tries to silence you, if someone tries to shape you, if someone tries to do anything, you fork off, right? But if, if that's someone... Sorry, if, if, the, if the network, if the social media utility is publicly owned, that someone is the government, right? Well, so, so, again... I mean, if I have an ability to... You are projecting an assumption here, and you're not imagining a scenario of which cryptocurrency offers one in which no government is required. In which the structure, the centralized, the top-down power mechanism you are describing, historically always present, right? Obvious. There are many people of which you cited cryptocurrency people, and I'm citing open source people, who would argue that such structures are no longer relevant and that the ability to decentralize or in my context fork off a eh, means that any attempt of top-down control or top-down coercion or to speak i think more directly to what you're talking about top-down shaming you could just scurry off so and, and look allow me to just point out very briefly i have goats and, you know, a week ago I had three goats. Now, due to the magic of reproduction, I have seven goats. And I can assure you, goats do what goats want to do. And one's ability to contain them or get them to do what you want is really frustrating. And I'm willing to bet that humans are even more frustrating. And that it's actually really difficult to get them to do what you want. Especially if they can fork off, eh? or decentralize or do what they got. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking about the last year and I think it's pretty easy to get people to do what you want them to do and you just... Are we're... you kidding me? You know how many people aren't wearing fucking masks given the science that tells them they should? It's very clear to me that if people don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. We're sitting here on the tail end of a year of fucking lockdown. And everyone just and you know went, oh, many okay. ignored that lockdown? Not very many. many. I mean. Yes, Mark, many. Again, maybe in your social circle, not. But I can assure you there is like empirical evidence that a lot of people did what they wanted. And we are going to have a long pandemic as a result. Right? This virus is not going away because a lot of people are doing whatever they want. Please, Charles, bail us out. Um, <laughs> Well, I just want to go back to this whole idea of, of utilities because I, um, I, I'm basically speaking in, in favor of government. Now, I, you know, we all have, as Mark pointed out, can you trust the government? And the whole point of trust in government is if you have a say, if you have agency as part of that government. Now, if you don't have any agency, you have no say, then, of course, it's run by some, you know, clique or, or cabal or an elite and you 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 have no voice, then of course, yeah, you, you do you do have to distrust them because they don't have any, your, the common interest in at, uh, at all, right? They're just basically self-interested elites. And so the idea of a of a well-run utility is it's private capital that owns the the water you know distribution system or the electrical distribution system, and there is an oversight which is of elected representatives, which sets the incentives and priorities of that system to serve the public good. 
So and to take the, uh, the this example of these utilities, the number one thing is to have um, is to provide your capital is going to be rewarded with a modest but reliable yield. Right. We're allowing you to make a profit. But in return, you have to provide a super reliable, safe product to everyone at a fair price, which we will establish. Now, you can say, well, that's anti-competitive and it's all like. Yeah, but in this case, my my larger point is markets don't always serve the common good. That's the neoliberal theology that markets always serve the common good. That is simply not true. And so th that's where the idea of a utility is. It's private capital that chooses a reliable, safe return that's that's over that has oversight by public representatives. And so that's a model that I think is is still has a role. Now, it, it can't be applied everywhere any more than markets can be applied everywhere, but I think it has a role. Now, you would say, well, that's nation state. And I would say, yeah, the nation state does in fact serve the common good in particular cases. And so I, I, I wanna be careful to say that when we talk about the network stake, I'm not, I'm not sure that's like a one size fits all. You know, that doesn't mean it solves all of, um, human problems, nor does it always serve the common good. And so I'm saying, if you take the utilities, which when you open them up to markets, you get Texas, or 10 years ago, you get California, a complete um, shite storm, for which there's no fix, by the way, because you've chosen the wrong model, you know. And so I look at social media and go, okay, just like in the electrical, you know, monopoly, that's that that's the utility that I'm talking about, private capital overseen by public uh, elected representation. You can escape that. You can get around that. Um, as Jesse has mentioned in rural areas, you can set up your own solar and, and um, or windmill or whatever you want and, and buy a battery and, um, and off you go. You, you are, you've chosen independence with your own capital, by the way, not public capital. You've, you've invested your own capital. So there are alternatives. But in social media, it's like I still think that model hold might be useful. In other words, private capital can do whatever it wants in social media, but it it's it's now based on not the profit center incentive, but it, the 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 profit the the motive and the incentive is now to provide a reliable platform for you know the common good of communication. See, that's a good example because I think it illustrates how you know we're we're confusing two different axes here, right? On the one hand, we're talking about, you know, public versus private or government versus corporate or nation state versus network state. And this is like the power axis. But then on the other side, we're talking about centralized versus decentralized, right? Because they're yeah. two different things. And, and I think, Mark, that's where, you know, where you and I have completely different perspectives here to Charles's point is you're living in Toronto. So you're living in the center, right? The literal center of the country and a global center of that. Versus I'm living out in the country. I'm like, no, I don't wanna be in the center. I wanna be in the margins. I, I wanna be in the decentralized part. You know, the same way, Charles, that when you're thinking about social media as a public utility, what I was sort of articulating that that may not require the the, the level of uh, government or even uh, public or nationalized control is that it could be decentralized social media, 
right? And decentralized social media could still allow the network effect and the scale that these platforms have while still mitigating against the concentration of power or even mitigating against the need for surveillance entirely because that information can be federated and anonymized and encrypted in ways that, you know, make surveillance near impossible or make, you know, advertising-based surveillance near impossible. So I think we got to be careful of thinking about how we're not talking about a binary of like these guys versus these guys. We're talking about a map in which there's lots of players who some of them are centralized, some of them are decentralized. Some of them believe in America and the nation state or China and the nation state. And others believe in Facebook and the network state or Bitcoin and the network state. And they all have different ways of approaching it. And I think if we move forward approaching it like a map, it's easier to your point, Mark, about who do we trust or who do we not trust? It depends really depends on context and situation. Yeah, yeah. while you were saying that, I think I might have misunderstood one of your earlier points about making the social media networks into a public utility. It's not like I thought there was like a, a nationalization aspect of it. But as you were talking about this, just before you started talking about the decentralized version of it, I was kind of, I almost zoned out because I suddenly had this vision of, a decentralized type of social network. I'm sure this is being worked on somewhere, but I just had this idea of not like almost the way we all have email browsers on our devices and we just send each other emails and it really doesn't make any difference to any of us what any of the other people are using to read that email. It just shows up in whatever their preferred client is and they read that email. And you could do that for every aspect of what you do, the reasons why you participate in social media from watching memes to Wall Street bets or whatever. Like there would be, you, if you just had these open source clients, just metaphorically like a crypto wallet on your, on your device, um, and it's just pure analogy, and then just different protocols for chats and images and comments and threads, and, and it would just sort of like become this mosaic in your in your client on your desktop that's just using, you know, PubSub, uh, DNS, uh, IPFS, just just different protocols to just zap this stuff around, but it knows how to get from point A to point B. It knows what the visibility is supposed to be. It knows, you know, who to, who's allowed to access it. It knows when to piggyback a little ad on it or a micropayment or anything like that. It can get pretty sophisticated. I would love to know who's working on this because I'm sure somebody is, but it really would disrupt the current model in a big way. Yeah, well, no, I, I agree to everything except the last part where you had a deterministic of it would disrupt the model. Well, the reason I, I say that, just could. just hear I me just out. I want to be sure, yeah. Yeah, because I my, my thought is everybody always says, well, we have to do something. Facebook has too much power, so we're going to create a different Facebook that doesn't have these policy imperatives that we find Dis disingenuous about Facebook. And I think that's the wrong approach. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you, each level of, of technology disrupts the previous one, because it's a completely different architecture. So you're not gonna, you're not going to disrupt Facebook and Twitter by using the same architecture and try and run a different uh, 
public policy on it. You're going to disrupt Facebook and Twitter by using a completely different architecture. The way Mastodon is a decentralized Fediverse. I, I'm not disagreeing with your argument. I'm disagreeing with anyone who says anything with 100% certainty. It's a lock. That is 100%. Yeah, I, I, no, I'm kidding. Of course. Anytime someone says that, I bet the opposite. I'm just, I know they're wrong. I'm just saying. I'm just pointing that out. But yeah. a couple of responses. Uh, Twitter is actively working on this. That doesn't mean that they're going to succeed. I think you're right in saying that the incumbents always have blind spots and uh, baggage that prevent them from taking advantage of the new. Secondly, there are many blockchain examples that are pursuing exactly what you're describing but again they're aspirational right like the 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 mistake that most software developers make is that they describe what they want before they do you know the latest tragic example of this was cyberpunk 2077 which is this huge video game yeah. that you know had a face plant because they way over promised and under delivered versus minecraft which never promised anything and developed completely in the open and is arguably the most successful video game ever right that you know the blockchain people all suffer from the you know we're going to tell you about the moon first not how we're going to get there and so it's not to say that one of them may not emerge and be exactly what you described because they certainly have tremendous potential and and tremendous momentum but you know for this to really happen, right? For And again, I, I've been saying all along in today's episode, I'm not sure I agree with what I'm suggesting. I'm just floating it out there. But for the for open source to work in general, it's it requires a lot of people. It requires network effects. So in order for what we're describing to be effective, government has to be on side. Corporations have to be on side. Software developers have to be on side. You know, users have to be on side. Influencers and celebrities got to be on side. Now, not everybody of those categories has to be on side, right? Like Google could be on side, but Facebook not. And United States could be on side and China not, right? Like you could do it if you had enough people in each of those categories. But if you have a holdout, if governments say, no, we're not going to do that, we declare it illegal, then it may not happen, right? If governments do it, but corporations don't, then it's also probably not going to happen. And if corporations and government do it, but everyone else says, no way, it's a conspiracy, then it's also not going to happen. So the only way for this scenario to happen is if you have enough factions within each of those different categories to come together to create a network and then become a legitimate network state that delivers the kind of democratic society we desire. Charles? <laughs> well, Mark, I really, uh, I, I really like the way that you uh, outlined this whole idea, which is building on what, what Jesse was saying about open source, about it's a, a mosaic of, of different protocols, which the hard, the, the heavy lifting would be done by in the software development that, that Jesse's describing. In other words, it has to be seamless to the user, and that's going to be really hard. But if I, I like your vision as an alternative, um, and I would just comment that it's interesting that you use the word mosaic, uh, which you're referring to the protocols that would be 
uh, on the desktop as a mosaic. And of course, that was the first browser, yeah, which right. which really opened the revolution, right? Because once you were just had a text line, that 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 was um, all well and good, but it was the browser, the mosaic browser, that really uh, made it what it is today. And so I like that that image. Um, and I'll leave you with one. Um, I think this is kind of a cyberpunk uh, image, if you will, since we've had a few images in here. When you visit the Facebook headquarters in the Bay Area, which I have, because I had a we had a friend who worked there temporarily as an attorney. And so there's this glass cube and it's almost like out of a science fiction film because there's this huge warehouse. You know, in other words, it's this open plan is is what the um, this gigantic structure is is all open. Right. And there's little cubicles for for uh, Zoom meetings and stuff like that, where you can close the door. And at sort of at the center of this hive, there's this glass cube where the, you know, Zuckerberg and the other uh, leaders are there occasionally meeting. So that, you know, the whole idea is, oh, we, we can see them and they're interacting with us, at least in the, in, the, in the physical world and stuff like that. And so it's like this kind of centralization is like anathema, in other words. What we're talking about is is something a network that isn't run by a handful of people in a little glass cubicle inside of a larger space, um, with you know maybe guys stroking white cats or something. You know? uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly, but where the revolution would be on the desktop. In other words, and that's really what the Mosaic browser did. It brought the revolution to every desktop and how that's played out, you know. And, and that's why I, I scorn, I heap scorn on the blockchain <laughs> people because you're 100% right, Charles. It's user interface, right? It's user friendliness. It's, you know, making it as simple as a web browser, making it as simple as email. Right. That's what it has to be. And I recognize there are people in the cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, blockchain world who are working on that and more power to them. I, you know, I'd love to see progress in that area. But that's why I objected, Mark, when you said anyone could fork Bitcoin because they can't. You need a certain level of literacy and capacity to do so. And and, you know, maybe in the future, that won't be the case. Maybe in the future, to Charles's point. It'll be as easy as moving a file from one folder to the next or dragging your mouse across the screen. And when it gets to that point of ease of use, then the, the system will be so resilient that people will be able to do what they want. Well, maybe I'll rephrase it as there's nothing preventing anyone from forking it if you just, you know. I'm going to argue with that one too if I you mean, really want it. Anyway, I think, I think we're actually arguing over minutia at that point. But, but it's important, minutia. Like politics is in the details. Power is in the details. And in those details, there's great philosophical moments that when you roll it back, you not only get better cryptocurrency, but you make more progress to mitigating or even preventing the rise of the Facebooks and the Googles and all the others. Because, you know, algorithms are so simple, right? And Facebook is so simple. But yet, in the little details of how they operate, they command people's attention. And I think that is part of what we're trying to understand and try to dissect so that we can build alternatives that are much more respectful of our attention, but more empowering in terms of our rights. 
Well, that sounds like a good place to wrap it up. I think so. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, everyone. That was Access of Easy Salon number 38. Like us on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>